0: Hello, it's Bria, Katie, and Lawton from the Office of Student Life and Leadership. Welcome to another episode of Heal Talks.
1: This podcast is dedicated to providing you with leadership development and civic engagement content through honest conversations and storytelling from UNC students, staff, faculty, and community
0: members. We believe that leadership is a learned process, so thank you for taking the time to learn with us. With that being said, let's get into the episode.
1: Thank you so much for having me
0: yes um, um, so i know you wanted to share a few words with us and tell us a little bit more about yourself so
1: i'll let you do that yeah um, so thank you for the introduction i as you mentioned grew up in new york city and had sort of an unusual childhood for an inner city kid Um, we had a backyard and I was constantly playing in the dirt and on the one of just two or three family vacations we went on, um, my whole childhood, I got to see a coral reef and this was in Florida through the bottom of a glass bottom boat. And it completely changed my worldview, right. To see that there's this whole other universe happening beneath the surface, all these colorful fish. you can imagine a five-year-old being like, what is happening? Um, And so I was completely enamored with nature and just in love with forests and mountains and flowers and bugs. And and then the ocean um, was to me, the thing that was the most mysterious um, and delightful and fascinating. And so that was what I decided I to spend my life doing was become a marine biologist. And I know that's super common for a lot of kids as a dream job. Um, And the reason that I stuck with it is because I realized that it's actually a lot of different things put together. When you sort of broaden the scope from marine biology to ocean conservation, I realized that it was basically like all my dream jobs in one, right? There's the dream of marine biologist. at five. At 10, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. Um, when I started learning about the civil rights movement in the US, um, when I was in high school, I wanted to become a park ranger and get like paid to hang out in the forest. When I was in college, I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. And so all of those things really combine into thinking about Um, the science and the justice and the protection and the policy that it takes to do conservation. And and so my work has now grown into thinking about that nexus, but specifically as relates to ocean and climate um, and the intersection there. So um, I guess my story by way of introduction is one of not choosing, which is maybe a strange message to be sharing with um, college students but I think it's really important because we're so often sort of forced to specialize and there is another option which is to think about how all of our interests all the skills we develop might actually be able to weave together um, and enable us to make an even bigger impact on the things that we care about if we're able to bring more of those um, areas of expertise to bear. So, so my selection of a, a, a major in college was environmental science and public policy because I knew that I would need all those skills. Right, I studied economics and law and policy and atmospheric chemistry and ecology and statistics and all of that together, um, and I found that to be a really great preparation. But it means, of course, that I don't have super super deep expertise in those things. And so my work right now is um, really grounded on collaborations with people who are deep, deep, deep subject matter experts. And then I can help connect the dots and and build these teams and and collaborations. And it's really such a joy to be able to, to do that.
0: Well, thank you for those wonderful opening remarks about your journey and how you come from what I thought was a cool childhood dream. I definitely was not that imaginative as a kid, but actually seeing that to fruition, which I think is hard for a lot of people to actually take their childhood dream job and make it a reality. So I thank you for those opening remarks. They were very relatable to where we are, where I am as a senior in college and about to go on in Life and decide what am I gonna do? Um, yeah. So, I want to talk more about your work. What are you
1: gonna do? What oh, do what think? am I gonna do?
0: Um, you know, I'm gonna leave it broad. I'm gonna what change the world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm great. going to change the world and be a superhero. That's where I'm gonna leave it at for now. And I'm sure the details will come later. <laughs>
1: um low bar low expectations (laughs) I know
0: but then when I surpass it it's all better Um, So getting more into your journey into activism and environmental racism, I know you talked about that, you know, where you are right now is kind of the pinnacle of a lot of different avenues that you were interested in. And so I want to focus on specifically um, how you decided that you were going to get involved in um, environmental justice, ocean justice and things like that along your journey.
1: I don't know that it was ever a decision. It was just an, a sort of an, a growing understanding of the way that the things that I cared about were deeply intertwined, right? I'm the daughter of a Jamaican immigrant who grew up fishing and um, in loving nature, right? Um, and to know that those coral reef ecosystems in the Caribbean are crumbling is heartbreaking and I know how people depend on them for not just you know nutrition and livelihoods, but also for culture. And I think we don't talk about culture enough when it comes to thinking about climate, the environment, ocean, conservation, right? Like our cultures are dependent on the world around us being intact. Our traditions, whether you it's like grandparents taking their grandchildren fishing or a fish fry on the beach or a hike to your favorite spot in a forest, right? Those require that these places are there. Um, and so I think, I think my commitment to environmental justice grew out of um, an understanding of the sacredness of cultural connections to nature and how important it is to preserve those and how at risk they were for communities who often were not causing the environmental degradation that they um, were having to deal with. Um, And so this this broader topic of environmental justice um, is is a very serious challenge because the question is, should one group of people based on their color of their skin or their income, have to bear more of the burden of environmental risks than other people? Should should Black people have to deal with more pollution, um, either air or water? Should Latinx people have to deal with more exposure to droughts or floods? Should Indigenous people have to deal with, and it sort of goes on and on, and these disproportionate risks um, impacts, dangers to to health and well-being are, are very much not evenly distributed. Um, and so it it's it seems like it would be a very straightforward question to answer how did I get involved? but it's really just out of an understanding of fairness, right? I don't have like a an aha moment. It's just knowing that the ways in which, our policy and society are currently structured are just like fundamentally unfair and putting some groups of people at much higher risk. When we think about the impacts of hurricanes or floods or droughts or fires, who, who is taken care of? Who has the resources to recover and rebuild, right? Um, it's, it's definitely um, low income communities and communities of color who are hit the hardest by these things, right? Um, and often those are the groups who have the smallest carbon footprint or have done the least to cause the problem. Um, and so that makes it um, even more unjust. So I think it's just just a matter of fairness and, and knowing that whatever power or privilege I have um, should be spent on, on trying to help others understand what's at stake um, and and make things a bit more fair. Well, I mean, that was a a wonderful
0: response, in my opinion, just the fact that you, like you said, didn't have an aha moment. This is just something that was rooted in you and one of your kind of core values that you just really um, resonate with. And so I think you kind of touched on, you know, what environmental racism is and how it's the disproportionate effects that certain communities have to face with environmental risk. Um, So what I'm kind of wondering is, um, is more so how does the intersection of certain identities um, cope with environmental racism and work through The issues and fight to challenge this unfair system? You know, how can
1: individuals work to overcome? So, this is a hard question to answer as a general question because what I can do and what you can do and what each person who's listening can do is probably something different, right? Like, if we all did the same exact thing, we would be wasting some of our magic, right? We would not be bringing all of our our skills to bear. And so it's a sort of unsatisfying answer always to answer with a question, but the answer of what can you do to help is, I don't know, what are you good at, right? Like this is a very common sort of return of the question that a lot of career coaches use or advisors to say like what what are the skills that you have that you want to be using in your in your job or your volunteer work think about how to deploy those right so but that's only part of it right like what do you have to bring to the table more broadly do you have do you have money? Do you have time? Do you have a great network? Do you know other people who can help? Are you good at like convening people? Like, what is it that you can contribute? Um, because we, we often think about this as like a checklist that's the same for everyone, right? Like, um, you know, spread the word and donate and vote for people who get it and march and protest and, you know, sort of like a standard list. And that's fine. I do all those things. I think it's great for us to do those things and think about how to reduce our own um, impact on the planet as well. But when it comes to solving big, complicated problems, the opportunity is to say, which part of this can I help with, right? If we think about environmental injustice, how are we going to fix that? we need to break it down, right? Like, is there something that's happening where you live? Is there something that's related to what you're studying in college that could become a term paper, which could become a memo to your member of Congress, right? Like, what is the thing that you wanna work on? Um, And so the way that I I sort of zoom out and try to think about the answer to, to, to this question of environmental justice, but more broadly, like, if you want to help with addressing the climate crisis um, An environmental crisis more generally, um, I think of it like a Venn diagram, right? So like three overlapping circles. And the first one is like, what are you good at? Like, what are you bringing to the table? And the second one is, um, which part of this problem do you wanna work on? Like, what's your, what's your specific solution you wanna to contribute to? And the third one, which I feel like doesn't get talked about often enough is what brings you joy? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Like what will keep you excited about doing this work? Because there is so much to do. There are so many different things we could be working on. Why would we pick the one that makes us miserable and like leads to burnout and makes us not want to give it our all. How do we pick things that make us like bring our best, be able to be creative. And so figuring out where those three circles overlap. Like what's at the center of what are you good at? What is the work that needs doing? And what brings you joy? And like, how can each of us figure out how to get close to that epicenter of that Venn diagram? And I realized that, you know, we also have to think about how to pay our bills. And we also have to think about like what jobs are really available. And this doesn't have to be just for your your day job, right? This could just be like how you wanna show up in the world. Um, and so that's thinking that way really helped me f- choose the projects that I work on now because there's so many things we could all do, right? Um, I'm currently upstate New York with my mother. She lives on this little farm and raises chickens and has an orchard and I could very easily be a farmer but is that like the best use of me in, in helping to solve the problems right now? Well, I have all this different training um, and I know all these people in ocean and climate policy and philanthropy and science. So I should probably use that and I like it. So that's great. And so I do the farming stuff to help my family out on the side. So I think um, that, that's how I, I tend to approach this. And when it comes to the, like justice more specifically than, than climate and the environment, Um, I think the same mindset of diagramming that applies. Um, It's just a matter of figuring out where are the, I think the hardest part is figuring out like what are the specific aspects of it you want to work on because there's so much to do, right? Um, whether it's air quality or drinking water quality or access to the outdoors or risks from storms, um, all of those things um, need need work. Um, And there are communities all over the country and all over the world that are struggling with this. So I think it's important to not try to be the superhero that saves the world, but instead to be the person who is a a critical element of a team working towards a solution. Um, And that's how I think about this because if if you try to be the hero, you'll drive yourself crazy um, and you'll be alone. And these problems are just way too big to do alone.
0: Well, thank you. I personally can say I've never really thought about in much depth beyond recycling and water conservation what I can do as an individual, but you've given me new perspective to look at what talents I do have now, even though I may not have environmental background, but what I could bring to the table to assist so thank you for that because that's something I personally have never thought of before. And you brought up some. um, I think it's
1: really important to offer people the opportunity to connect the dots between their skills and the work that needs doing. Um, So just by way of short elaboration right? It, there's a role for farmers in thinking about how to restore soil so that it absorbs more carbon. There's a role for lawyers in like suing fossil fuel companies, right? There's a role for engineers in thinking about how we design renewable energy. There's a role for designers and thinking about like how do we explain this visually how do we design the websites there's a role for artists and helping us see like what the future could look like if we get it right there's a role for for fashion designers to think in low impact ways right there's whatever it is that we want to do there's a way to do that to use those skills in a way that's um, that's good for the earth and and humans, but the other sort of millions of species that live here too. So I don't want people to think that you have to major in environmental science to contribute to addressing the climate crisis and coming up with solutions, right? Um, Whatever skills you have, you can be a part of an organization that's working, whether it's a company or a nonprofit or the government, um, there are so many ways to, to contribute.
0: Thank you. Um, In your last response, you brought up how um, you kind of found your intersection of your Venn diagram and your projects. And so I want to talk to you now about some of those and get your understanding for, you know, what inspires you to start these initiatives and things like that. So firstly, I was wondering if you could share with us what led you to create your Urban Ocean Lab and co-found the All We Can Save project.
1: So for the Urban Ocean Lab, it was as a girl from Brooklyn who went and did 10 years almost of work in the Caribbean when I was studying marine biology and after I finished my PhD, um, it was pretty funny to come back to Brooklyn after being gone for 18 years and realize that New York is a coastal city. Like I had just not ever thought about it. But we have almost 600 miles of coastline. It's actually an archipelago of a few dozen islands, right? Manhattan and Long Island and Staten Island um, and all the smaller ones. And so I think that was a realization that there was something I could contribute to the place where I was from um, and and having spent you know most of my career working on policy at the Environmental Protection Agency, at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, working with Caribbean island governments, I knew enough about policy to know that we just need to change sort of the framework, and the rules of the game if we're going to adapt to sea level rise and more frequent and intense storms and things like that. Um, and I have this fascination with design around cities and buildings and art. My father was an architect and an artist. So I was raised to sort of see the world through, um, through how we design the built environment. Um, and again, the justice piece, right? Knowing that coastal communities in New York City with low-income communities, communities of color, um, public housing, for example, is often built in flood zones and so people who lived there were much more at risk and, and, and some communities have, uh, have not yet recovered from Hurricane Sandy, which was many years ago now. So all of those things combine in this, in this question of like, what is the future of coastal cities in adapting to climate change? Um, and the things that I know about and the things that I enjoy was this policy think tank, Urban Ocean Lab um, that I co-founded with um, a policy expert and a designer to think about how do we evolve the way that coastal cities um, plan for a changing climate. And this work brings me so much joy because it's fascinating and it's complicated, but it, and it builds on things that I know about, right? It's not easy. I'm still learning new things every day and, 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 and reading a lot and collaborating with a bunch of partners who, who know have complementary areas of expertise, but that's that's a great example of like what this Venn diagram looks like. I, I was literally just writing down as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Okay, like how do all these pieces fit together? Like this is this is what I know about, and I I how can I be most useful? I think that's the that's the question that really drives me is how can I be the most useful? Because it's so gratifying, right, to be able to contribute to something that's bigger than yourself, um, to know that you, you're you're helping in some way with these massive challenges that we face as a society, um, and so that I I ask myself that question repeatedly: How can I be most useful? And the answer evolves, right? The thing that you do right out of college is not necessarily the thing you'll be doing in five years or even in two years and that's fine the answer can and should evolve based on the opportunities that you're presented with um, and how your your interests and skills evolve so this is sounding like a weird career coaching session but um it's very much how i um how i approach designing uh my portfolio of projects that i work on
0: Thank you. Um, And speaking on another project that you're working on currently, could you share with us what the Blue New Deal is and how it is similar and different from the Green New Deal that's kind of been popping up in politics lately?
1: Sure. Um, So the Green New Deal, for those who who aren't super familiar with the, the specifics of what it is, was a resolution introduced in Congress by Representative Ocasio-Cortez in the House and Senator Ed Markey in the Senate. Um, And they put forward this framework, essentially outlining a vision for what federal climate policy could look like um, in a way that really integrated um, economics and justice um, as well as conservation. Um, all about jobs and job training, includes stuff on healthcare and workers' rights, because a lot of how we address the climate crisis has to do with how we shift from an economy based on fossil fuels to a renewable and regenerative economy. So it's not just like taxing carbon, it's gonna take more than that, right? Um, And so this resolution is 13 pages long. It's pretty large font and double-spaced. So you can read it in five or ten minutes, and people think it's hundreds and hundreds of pages long. No, you could re- you could read it. It's in plain English. It's it's not complicated legal language, um, and I think that's important. That more and more of us who care about these topics actually do read these things because what you read in you know in the reporting on it is often like a particular angle or a particular aspect, and so I, I think it's very useful to. Especially when it's that short, when these things are hundreds of pages of long, I don't, I don't read them either. But when they're 13 pages double spaced, I read them. And what stuck out to me was that the ocean was basically not mentioned. Right. The ocean, which I know, which I think of as a source of climate solutions, was essentially left out. And so on page 10, I see the word ocean for the first time. It's just like in a list of things we should protect. And that to me was just a missed opportunity because I think about renewable energy offshore, wind turbines and wave energy and floating solar panels. I think about regenerative farming in the ocean of seaweeds and shellfish um, and how that can be um, one of the lowest carbon footprint ways to provide nutrition. I think about coastal ecosystems like wetlands and mangroves and seagrasses, oyster reefs and coral reefs that physically protect us from storms while they're absorbing a lot of carbon. I think about algae as a source of biofuel, right? There are all these ways in which the ocean is a hero. And we often just think of it as a victim of climate change, which is true, um, but it's not the whole story. And so obviously a lot of other ocean people who read it had a similar thought. Like there's some stuff that's left out And so I got together with a few colleagues and wrote um, an op-ed called The Big Blue Gap in the Green New Deal to point this out. And then that led to getting attention of another policy think tank. And we collaborated on a policy memo about the the, the economic opportunities of all these ocean climate solutions, how many jobs they would create if we thought about um, transitioning our ports to off of fossil fuels. If we thought about this ocean farming and and renewable energy sector um, on the ocean side, not just the land side. And then that became a question in a CNN climate town hall that was asked to Senator Elizabeth Warren when she was running for president of whether she would support this idea of a blue new deal. And she said, absolutely, this seems like a great idea. And then her campaign staff called me and said, our boss just agreed to creating a blue New Deal on national television, <laughs> can you please help us figure out what that is? Um, and so, next thing you know, I'm you know helping uh, advise this presidential campaign on figuring out like what would a blue New Deal look like. Um, and once Biden became the candidate, I was able to talk to that campaign and say like these are things that we would love for you to include in your policy plan. And now that you know the, the woman that was leading the creation of the blue New Deal plan for the Warren campaign. Is the chief of staff for the Climate Office in the White House, and so these ideas just keep getting carried forward. Um, and a lot of the ideas that we've put forward around wind energy with colleagues are being included in um, in the Biden team's um, policy proposals. So it's a matter of. This is one of the best examples I can think of of just what happens when you see a need, and what skills you have, and bring in your team and just follow your nose, right? It's this emergence of opportunity and not just stopping and not waiting for the invitation. No one asked me my opinion, right? I just started writing about it and talking about it with colleagues and sharing what what we knew um, and and publishing op-eds and volunteering our time to support people who are working on the policy Um, and that experience absolutely change the way I understand what's possible. Because so often we're like, it's not my job, someone else will do it. But I don't think anyone else would have done it, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm special with magical powers. It just means you have to just look around. And if it's not happening, figure out why. And if you are the person who can help make it happen. Um, and that is something that I hadn't quite understood so clearly before. I understood it in part because I worked on the March for Science, and that was another one of those things where, um, and I have a lot of friends who worked on the Women's March and the March for Our Lives. And no one knocks on your door and says, would you like to help organize this? In most cases, you just say, I see that something is needed, and I'm going to jump in and offer what I've got. And sometimes and often it's unpaid. Um, Most of my policy work, I don't get paid for, but it is the most gratifying work that I do. Because to think that you could influence the laws of this country or of a city or a state is pretty remarkable. And to think that that there's this opportunity if you just want to step up. And politicians are so concerned about getting reelected, um, and their staff need help coming up with ideas for things to propose, right? As long as you can gracefully take rejection, which is a skill to be honed, um, I think there's so much sort of beauty and opportunity that awaits us if we just raise our hands.
0: Thank you. That was a wonderful response, and I myself am intrigued to go read the (laughs) 13-page (laughs) double-spaced plain English Green New Deal, now that I know it isn't 100 pages long, Um, and also excited to see and hear more about where the Blue New Deal will go in the future and what the Biden administration will take from it and continue to push it forward, hopefully. Um, I know we're getting close on time.
1: I've just dropped the link in the notes so anyone can go read it now. If if you two are curious, check it out.
0: Yes, check it out, y'all. Check it out because <laughs> I will too. <laughs> um, so I guess one of the questions that I want to close on, um, There, I'm going to close on two, actually. I just thought of another one. Um, my first question is, Thinking about how we've come a long way in the United States in terms of gender inclusivity in a variety of areas. Um, But I still feel like personally policy and the sciences and stem can still do a lot more growing um, than where we are now. So just from your experience, what is it like being a woman in spearheading these design and policy initiatives and stem focused programs?
1: So I'm a woman, I'm a black woman, I'm a black woman from Brooklyn. I'm a black woman from Brooklyn with a PhD in marine biology, right? Like all of these different identities add up, right? That's intersectionality. Um, I'm a policy nerd. Every day I wake up as all of these things and I don't get to choose. Those are just, part. that's that's the way I, I exist in the world. Um, and I have had it pretty easy I would say. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, I have amazing parents who made sure I had great a great education um, and had the opportunity to fully explore all the things that I was interested in. Um, I grew up in a working-class family so we didn't have bunch of extra money but they always figured out how to get me you know dance classes or a tutor I needed a tutor for physics right like they figured out how to help me through all these things explore my interests and 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 get my homework done um and and actually specifically encouraged me to pursue science I remember my mother saying the world needs more black scientists and not understanding what that meant at the time, right? I was probably 14 years old. Um, but it's something that stuck with me because it's so such a curious thing to say. Like, why would that be? And I didn't understand fully why that would be um, until actually I was doing my PhD already and realized that as a Black person who is the daughter of a Jamaican immigrant who understands the cultural context of ocean conservation in the Caribbean, when I'm designing scientific experiments, when I am coming up with hypotheses, I ask different questions, right? It doesn't mean they're better or worse, but who you are and the experiences that you've had influence what types of research you do. And I was doing research thinking about how to, how to protect and restore Caribbean marine ecosystems for the benefit of the communities who depend on them. And that was absolutely an outgrowth of, of my upbringing and and my family history. And so we often like want to paint it as if it's biased, to have an opinion, to have a reason why you want to study one thing over another that's personal, but the, the choice of which research that we do is very different than how we do that research. So I can be completely objective and rigorous in how I answer these questions about how to make fishing more sustainable, about what the policy should be, um, but my it is like my heart that guides which questions I ask and which things that I work on. Um, and I've been exceedingly lucky. Um, you know, I'm also a dork and, and work super, super hard, but being a woman and being black haven't affected me negatively in the sciences the way they have for other people. Part of it's because. I've had wonderful advisors. Part of it's because I had the privilege of a top-notch education for my whole life, so I wasn't trying to catch up. A lot of people who grow up in schools that are majority, like inner city schools of color, do not have great STEM educations in middle school and high school, and still are trying to catch up later, and are at a disadvantage. I didn't have that, Um, and so I've been able to move a lot faster in my career because of like what everyone should have, right? The fact that I had a decent science education growing up should not be remarkable for a black kid from Brooklyn, but it is. Um, and so I think because I have all these fancy degrees, right, because I went to Harvard, because I worked at the Environmental Protection Agency and in federal policy because I have a PhD in marine biology because I speak a way that people understand very clearly in the sort of world of, of privilege because I have had experiences that I can relate to with people who have more power, whether that's like skiing or sailing or the books that I've read or whatever it is, right? Like there are all these ways to connect with people who have a lot of privilege and power that I've had access to, whether it's like, oh, which dorm did you live in at Harvard? Right, there are all these like weird things that open doors that I didn't understand that have like smoothed the path in my life. And so I am like very deliberate about how I use the fact that these doors are open to me to throw them open for other people. Because it's not that I'm smarter, I work hard, right? Um, and it's not that I don't deserve the opportunities that I get. It's that other people also deserve them, and have not had the chance because of you know systemic inequalities in our country. And so I feel very much a responsibility to give back. This was sort of like the mantra of my parents, like you know to whom much is given, much is expected, kind of thing. Like how are you going to give back? They didn't just tell me how, but they were like, you have to give back. Um, And so this drives that question I was telling you before, like, how can I be most useful? Um, And so the future where my work is successful in part looks like a future where I am less rare, right? Where when you're deciding who to invite to speak, you have a hundred PhD marine biologist climate policy nerds to choose from who are black women, right? Like that's the dream, right? There are, there are like multitudes of people from all backgrounds who have the opportunity to develop the skills that they need to to contribute to the world in in the ways that they want to, um, and we've we've got a ways to go, but. Um, but we're working on it. Well, I am actually going to
0: close with that because (laughs) that was fantastic. And I do know we have some questions from those who have attended that they want to ask you. So I'm going to leave space for them. But I thank you for your time with me and this wonderful conversation that we've had. My pleasure has been super enlightening for myself so i am going to see here okay one of our first questions is from hope they are saying hi we're starting a student group on campus to address the impacts of climate change it's going to be called the carolina climate and health alliance Um, Hope is wondering, how do you think we as students can start working in the space of climate change adaption, even before we graduate and look for jobs in the field?
1: It's a great question, Um, and I'm so glad you're asking it, Hope. Um, I guess I would say I just I need to know a lot more about what's going on um, where you are before I'd be able to answer in detail um but the first step for you then is to figure out like what are the specific challenges um that you want to work on right is there a list of climate impacts is there one you want to choose is there something that's about to come up for a decision in your city council or in your state house right um are there are there things on timelines with with moments to weigh in, right? Is there a bill being introduced um, or discussed that you might be able to comment on? Like, what are the needs um, and opportunities of this moment? And a lot of that has to do with talking to the community. I think you know, as college students, probably a lot of you are not from exactly the place where your school is, right? So there's a need to listen before acting. What are people already doing? What are the gaps? Where can you be most useful? Um, What help is needed? What help is wanted? And, And that just has to do with doing your homework, right? Figuring out what are the initiatives underway, Um, What are the specific opportunities? So um, I think sometimes the answer is writing letters. Actually, political officials have to read and respond to your mail. So it is very powerful to write individual emails or letters to your elected officials. Um, You can also sign up to go meet with them and tell them what you you think is important because they know that for every person who writes a letter there are 10 more that agree with you who haven't written a letter. So they actually do count these things very heavily. Um, sometimes it's the time for protest to say, we oppose this thing that you're doing. Um, and it's just a matter of like, what's your vibe, right? Are you, are you gonna throw a cool um, art, artistic street party? where we're like highlighting these issues and making visual the impacts that sea level rise or storms could have on a community and getting people motivated to participate. Are you gonna be the ones protesting? Are you gonna be the ones writing the op-eds about the things that you care about? Are you going to be the ones spreading the word? Are you going to be like, what is the thing, the angle that you wanna pick or the issue that you wanna pick? And a lot of it has to do with doing your research, learning about all the other local groups, learning about what policies are being introduced and considered right now, that you could make a really big difference on.
0: Thank you. Um, We have some more questions coming in. Our next question is, in relation to the federal infrastructure plan coming up, what would you like to see in this that would advance climate and environmental justice, climate change and water issues?
1: This is a great question. And I will start by admitting, I have not been able to keep up with the news on climate policy and infrastructure plan. This is all very new. Um, And I've a lot of other projects I've been working on. So I'm going to give you a pretty general answer, which is in this transition from a fossil fuel-based economy to a regenerative economy, we need to make sure that people have access to training for all the new jobs that are going to become more popular, right? Installing solar and wind energy, that's some of like the fastest growing businesses, that sector of renewable energy um, is growing super, super quickly. And we need to make sure that people have the opportunity to be trained for those jobs to participate in this economy as as it starts to shift, right? Um, So job training is something that I think is really important to be a part of that. Um, I'd also like to see a lot, this will not surprise you, um, on coastal ecosystem restoration. Um, Often that is the the most cost-effective way to protect coastal communities from the impacts of storms. And so protecting and restoring nature and and paying people to do that work of protecting and restoring nature um, is is quite important as well. Um, We also often see that ports are a large source of pollution. All of these big ships and the facilities of the ports themselves causing a lot of air pollution and the communities who are dealing with that nearby, often low income communities and communities of color um, are, are experiencing really um, really dangerous air quality um, which you know, leads to asthma and heart conditions and, and, and other sort of respiratory illnesses and cancers. So how can we transition our port and think about air quality as part of that Um, I guess like one way to put it more broadly is to think about the intersection of climate change and public health because there's the long-term impacts um, of climate change all of the extreme weather events etc that are going to continue to get worse um, and we can sort of like curtail if we deal with our emissions and um, protect and restore nature that can absorb carbon uh, out of the atmosphere. Um, But there's also the short-term impacts of burning fossil fuels, which have very unjust impacts depending on who you are and where you live. Um, So those are some of the things that um, once I do catch up and read all of these documents and proposals and analyses, that's kind of the stuff that I will be keeping an eye out for wonderful um and we have one more audience but i I should add i am thrilled that the infrastructure bill is including a lot about climate right because we have to shift our our transportation and our shipping and our ports and our manufacturing those are those are some of the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions and so as we think about infrastructure it is a chance to think about climate solutions. And the Biden administration is the first administration to really say, climate change is an infrastructure issue. It's an economic issue, it's a jobs issue, it's not a nature issue. And that's a really important evolution in federal policy.
0: Thank you, Um, we have time for one more question. Um, and this question is going to come from Aliyah. They are saying that as you are a part of various nonprofits and projects, what would be your biggest piece of advice for someone running a nonprofit based on ocean science education, specifically in this virtual invites inv- only
1: climate? Oh, gosh. Um... I don't know that I have a good answer for that one. I have not been doing any of that work. I am not doing online ocean science education or any online education right now, apart from speaking to groups like this. Um, So I don't know, that's really hard. Um, And hopefully we won't have to be um, exclusively virtual for too much longer. Um, But I think, To me, it's, there's so much opportunity to show people an example and then send them off to to learn and explore. Because not everyone lives near the coast, but about 40% of Americans live in coastal counties. So if you're talking with people who live near the coast, how can we encourage people to actually go? It's one of the, the safest things we can do right now is be outside right? Um, How can we encourage people to step away from their screens and maybe participate actually a little bit less in virtual events and reconnect with the natural world? Because our disconnect from nature um, is driving a lot of the, the problems that we're seeing, right? The lack of understanding of how we are one of millions of species on the planet and how we fit into ecosystems, um, and how we can be a part of them instead of just like pummeling them and trying to like be on top of them. Um, I think that's an opportunity to really lean into right now, designing activities that help people reconnect with the natural world. And if they don't live near enough to the ocean to go, then then you know other nature-based things that have parallels with the phenomena that we see in ocean science, right? When we're thinking about photosynthesis, we can think about that Um, in terms of marine algae or plants on land when we're thinking about the interconnectedness of ecosystems we can certainly think about that um, you know in marine or terrestrial context so I know that seems like a weird answer when you're specifically asking about virtual events but like the more we can get people outside especially as the weather is getting nicer and nicer right now I think um, that would be really helpful in the long run because we will have this connection to something that we care about and love that will be able to motivate us over the course of our lives and over the course of the gazillion hours we will be spending in front of our computers.
0: Well, thank you once again. Thank you to everyone who came out, those in the audience who submitted questions. These were great questions. We are so sorry if we couldn't get to everyone's question, but we have to yeah, conclude the event for the sake of time. But once again, thank you all for attending on behalf of myself and Cuba. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for thank sharing with for us that. your wisdom and insight. Um, I myself have learned a lot, and based on um, our attendees and their questions, they are also very excited and interested in continuing to learn more about environmental justice. So thank you all.
1: And have a wonderful evening. All right. Take care, everyone. Thanks for having me.
0: Check back in with us next time for more leadership conversations with our engaging and inspiring guests. Be sure to like, comment, and share Hill Talks wherever you are listening. We will catch you next time. Peace.